Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. I'm going to do a really quick episode responding to an objection that comes up sometimes against Reformed theology or Calvinism, um, dealing with the passages from Jeremiah that say something like, nor did it ever enter my mind, speaking of the sins of the people. Enjoy the show. Anti-Calvinists and open theists will often try and bring up Jeremiah 19, 4 through 5 in order to either undermine the notion that God has decreed or ordained evil, or establish the even stronger open theistic claim that God did not know the future and actually learns it. This passage reads, starting in verse 4, quote, Since they have abandoned me and have made this place foreign and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known, and since they had have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I did not command nor speak of, nor did I ever nor did it ever enter my mind. End quote. And then he goes on to pronounce judgment. The northern kingdom of Israel has already apostatized, and now Jeremiah is declaring to the southern kingdom of Judah that they have that they, they too have grievously sinned and will be conquered by the judgment of God. God here tells them that he will be bringing a judgment upon them because of the wickedness of their sin, specifically in their sacrifice of their children to false gods. The anti-Calvinist will attempt to say <clears throat> that because God says, nor did it ever enter my mind, that this entails that God never decreed or ordained it to happen. The open theist will push this claim even further and say that this shows God did not know it would happen and thus obviously could also not decree or ordain it. Are these valid criticisms of Calvinism or Reformed theology? It seems to me that they're quite weak, actually. This is for one main reason. They simply fail as a criticism of our actual theological position. A criticism can come in two forms, external and internal. An external critique means that the objection demonstrates the truth of some fact by some independent standard that we all agree on, and then shows that this fact contradicts the position in question. It cannot merely assume or assert its own position and say, well, since I believe this position, therefore your position is false. That would be simply to beg the question. An internal critique attempts to show that within the position in question, there is an inconsistency or a contradiction. 
Now, it's not clear what kind of objection is being levied against the reform view, since the critics seem to present this argument in both manners or in mixed manners, and it's somewhat all over the place. Thus, I will attempt to dispatch both kinds of objections in one response. I'm going to try to steel man them as best as possible as their own independent external and internal versions. Now, in order for an external critique to work against the reform view, it must demonstrate the truth of an alternative reading as being more probable or plausible than the reform view, such that one is convinced that the, that reading is the authorial intent and thus the reform view is dismissed as improbable. And it must do this in ways that the reform person would agree upon. Otherwise, again, it's just begging the question. For an internal critique to work, it must use the resources of reform theology and so that even given the reform view, there is a contradiction or conflict within it. I'll begin with the internal and then move to the external. First, reform theology, though this is not unique to reformed thought, has always maintained the classic statement on the two wills of God, that God can or decree or ordain that something happens, while also commanding that the human agent ought or ought not make it happen. We can see this in passages like Genesis 50:20 of Joseph being sold into slavery, where God intended it for good, while the brothers intended it for evil. Here, the two agents, God and the brothers, both have intentional stances to bring about the same action, selling Joseph into slavery. God can intend that it happens for good, while he can also have made it an immoral thing for the brothers to have done it. Or think of the crucifixion of Jesus, where Jesus is delivered up, quote, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, end quote, Acts 2.23, whereas it is also against God's moral will for the Jews and Pilate to have crucified an innocent man, indeed the Son of God, the perfectly holy second person of the Godhead. We can even look later in Jeremiah 19 itself, the very passage in question, where God says in 19, 8 through 9, quote, I will also turn this city into an object of horror and hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be appalled and hiss because of all its disasters. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh during the siege and the hardship with which their enemies and those who seek their life will torment them. Notice here that God is directly causing the hardship and says that he will be the one who, quote, makes them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. But at the same time, he says that it is the hardship which their enemies who seek their life will torment them. God is clearly stating that he will causally bring about their cannibalism within the siege, but surely does, that does not mean that God is saying that it is an upright for, thing for them to do. He is decreeing that it happens, indeed that he'll bring it to happen, but not that it ought to happen by the agents involved. They really ought not eat their children, but God has decreed that it will happen and indeed that he will bring it about. So these two wills in Reformed theology, and again, this is an exclusive to Reformed theology, are called the decreative will or the descriptive will and the permissive will or the prescriptive will. These uh, will sometimes also be called the hidden will and the revealed will as well. So 
How do we understand these two wills? wills? Well, we can simply state them as follows. The decreative will is God's creational decree of what will happen in the actual world. That is, he has created this world and not some other world where other things happen. And then there is his permissive will. That is his will where, of his moral commands of how we ought and ought not behave. These are very simple definitions and are somewhat unnuanced, I agree, to all that Reformed theology understands them to be. For a far more uh, robust discussion, I recommend going to the relevant sections of Burkhoff's or Bavinck uh, in their books on systematic theology. However, these simplified forms should be enough for our task here. On a Reformed reading in verse <clears throat> this verse in Jeremiah 19, like most of these examples brought forth by anti-Calvinists and open theists about evil actions, is an expression of God's permissive will. He never commanded it. It is radically outside of God's prescribed shalom and holy life that he has prescribed for his creation and the agents therein. In order for the external criticism to go through, the anti-Calvinist and open theist must show that this reading is unlikely. But to do that, they would need to engage in a full systematic rebuttal of the two wills across all of Scripture, which they never really do. Simply proof-texting the verse and assuming a flattened reading of it simply will not do and should not be compelling to any serious student of the Bible or theologically-minded. Further, if we read the It Did Not Enter My Mind clause in, in, in 19.5 previously in a way that it means he didn't decree or ordain it, then this actually creates other major problems for the critic, as this seems to push the language too far into God not even knowing it would happen. Notice that to avoid this being a part of the decreative will and not merely the permissive will, the critics must take this to mean that the sin of the people literally never entered the mind of God. That's the only way the objection can be meaningful. But this is clearly false unless one is attempting to prove open theism, which I would hope many anti-Calvinists themselves would want to avoid. Further, God not only said the same thing, that is, that it did not enter his mind uh, 12 chapters earlier in Jeremiah 7.31. I mean, did he forget between the two passages at over 12 chapters that he did know what they had done? But he also says it again in Jeremiah 32.35. Again, did he forget the prior two times that he knew about their sin? Is in, in, So, in addition... God also warned that this exact thing would happen when they abandon him and he hands them over in Deuteronomy 12.31 and Leviticus 18.21. So the literal reading that it did not enter God's mind not only pushes the verse over the edge into open theism, but even then would have God being forgetful and saying it repeatedly despite already knowing it and having warned of it centuries earlier. There's also an exegetical problem here with that reading, and that is that God says that it did not enter my leb, that's the word in Hebrew, where leb could be rendered as mind, but also could be rendered as heart or even will. The Septuagint renders it with cardia for heart, and so also doesn't prefer nous or mind as a translation, since Greek does have two words to distinguish heart from mind, where the Hebrew does not. 
So it's not even clear that this is a knowledge claim. And I actually think that this is best translated as the minority usage, will, that it did not enter his will, because it would follow the extremely common Hebraic literary couplet, a kind of parallelism that's common throughout the Hebrew Bible, especially in prophetic literature and, and wisdom literature. That is, that he says, I did not command it. No, notice the couplet. I did not command it. It did not enter my will. Here, following that Hebraism, which is replete in Hebrew prophetic literature, this is a couplet or parallel and clearly one of, a, a, of equation or what's called a synonymous parallel rather than a parallel of antithesis, since on any view, it's not a contrary set. So if the Hebraic couplet or synonymous parallel, then both clauses are saying the same thing. That is, it wasn't God's command. It wasn't in his will his permissive will, the will of command. So the, the, the parallel, the, the proper exegetical understanding when we understand the, the literary uh, trope that's happening here mitigates also against the objection. Therefore, both the external and the internal critique fail. The external critique is simply overstated and assumes far too much to be useful without a ton more spade work on the part of the critic. So at this point, that form of the argument can just be dispatched as simply incomplete. So pending the critic doing the necessary theological and exegetical work that would even be needed to demonstrate a flattened reading of the entire Bible to only have a single will of God and all of the massive problems that such a position causes to be able to overcome that, we can move on from that as, as, as a form of the objection. The external, the external uh, object critic, criticism just doesn't work. The internal critique also fails because the instant you read this in light of the two wills with the proper exegetical considerations, there just is no conflict from within the Reformed understanding of these passages. There's just no issue. Now, at this point, I should note that overcoming this objection in both the internal and external forms as I have does not mean that the Reformed view is true, though I obviously think that it is. However, it does defeat this objection against our view, and other objections would need to be levied to sustain the case against Reformed theology. Well, I hope you all found this helpful and enlightening. And as always, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, uh, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast.gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or head on over to the group page and join the discussion there at the Freed Thinker uh, on Facebook. As always, if you like and appreciate this content, please uh, uh, consider becoming a subscriber and a patron. You can do that on <clears throat> on the blog or on Patreon. And as always, the, this while this is only on the podcast and is uh, of an in-house discussion of biblical theology, the, please go over and subscribe to The Freed Thinker on YouTube for more apologetical content there. Thank you again for joining. Good night and God bless.